Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Here We Are podcast. This one is short and sweet because I was late, because I screwed up, everybody. Totally my fault. I'll make it up to you and Jim one day. And uh, But this is exciting. It's May 26th. That's when this is uploaded. Um, uh, who knows when you're listening. But May 26th for me, and that means that my album is out. It's called My Big Break. It's on iTunes and Amazon, and if it's not on Spotify by now, because this is pre-recorded, it will be very soon, so make sure and check that out. And um, yeah, make sure you listen to it first on Spotify, and if you like it, which you will, then go and, uh, and support me by buying it on iTunes and Amazon. How does that sound? You can go to shanemossmauss.com um, for more information. And as always, my Facebook and, and Twitter has information on there as well. Uh, speaking of Facebook, you guys do know that I have a fan page that I is the only one that I use. And I have a personal page. So if you follow me and you're on my personal page and you don't ever see me posting anything, that's because you're on the wrong page. Um, sorry, can't get into why Facebook is like that right now because I'm too excited to talk about my album. If you guys can do everything you can to spread the word for me, that would be really, really huge. It would mean a lot. This is a really big deal for me. Um, you know, it if it was... It could just be another comedy album. It's not that big of a deal to put out a comedy album um, these days. I, I could do it any time that I wanted to, but this one is quite special. You know, it's inspired by me breaking both of my feet, and I worked so hard on it, and I, I got science and comedy clicking together perfectly, in my opinion. I wouldn't change a thing about it. I am so excited um, to see people's reaction to it it's it's been going over so well in clubs and everything else and it's just my best work to date 
And um, I hope you feel the same. And if you do, please write me reviews on Amazon and iTunes and all of that good stuff and spread the word for me and help support me so I can do more stuff for you. Sound good? Um, And in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Jim Elser. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm back for day two at Arizona State University. It rained in Arizona. Uh, it's a magical day. I'm I'm going to blame the rain for being late, even though it really had nothing to do with me um, being late and more to do with my inability to get my ass out of bed this morning, if I'm being completely honest. And so now I have to do an abbreviated um, interview with, uh, with a man who studies roughly 400 different... <laughs> subjects. Yes, uh, I, I say that I have late onset attention deficit disorder. <laughs> uh, Jim Elser, everybody. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Nice to be here. So I, I usually ask my guests ahead of time um, to, uh, like, how would you like to be introduced? What's your title? And, and Jim said that he had so many titles um, that I wouldn't be able to remember them all. And so I thought it would be fun just to hear um, how many various titles uh, that you well, have. Well, it's not that many, but I am a Regents Professor in School of Life Sciences, and I am also um, Parents Association Professor of Life Sciences, and I am also a Distinguished Sustainability Scientist in the Global Institute of Sustainability, and I'm also currently serving as president of the Association for the Sciences of Limnology and Oceanography. And if you don't know what limnology is, it is oceanography, but in lakes and streams. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know what that was. That was going to be my first question. <laughs> I beat you to it. it you have um, you, you study lots of words that I don't understand. Well, I'm, that's why I'm here to help. <laughs> uh, what, what's the uh, main... I, I don't even want to take a stab at pronouncing it. It is possibly the world's ugliest word. The word you're struggling to, to think about is the word stoichiometry. Yeah, stoichiometry. It's very ugly. For most people who have been through science, you know, maybe a high school or college chemistry class, it's the part they hate it's the part where you balance chemical reactions for their uh, element uh, comp uh, the element counts that are involved in the products and reactants that's what it is it's the field of studying the that's the practice of balancing chemical reactions during some process with respect to elements and so you decided that um, since no one else enjoys doing this work, there would be plenty of opportunities for you. We, yes, we thought that if we would <laughs> develop this theory, we would be able, and it was successful, it would be strictly by the power of the approach and nothing to do with any you know, sexy title or, um, or pure enjoyment that people take from it. But yeah, essentially what we do is we, take, we balance the elemental uh, composition of organisms during uh, biological processes or ecological interactions, how much carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus the organisms have, how much they eat, how much is left over after they're done building their tissues. So we get a lot of uh, power from that. So that's what we do with that. And what was the theory that you 
It's called the Theory of Ecological Stoichiometry, ES, and then we've extended that, and here's another challenge we took on. We developed the Theory of Biological Stoichiometry, which, of course, has the acronym of BS. Uh So we figured if we can get that to take hold, then again, it's the power of the approach and nothing to do with our marketing. (laughs) (laughs) And, And can you explain what that is? Again, it's just taking that same way of thinking where, you know, when you have, for example, an organism that has a lot of phosphorus in its body, and, and we have a lot of phosphorus in our body because we have a lot of bones, for example, I guess because your bones are made of a calcium phosphate mineral. Other organisms have a lot of phosphorus in the body because they have a lot of nucleic acids in them because phosphate is in DNA and RNA, and we, they say that phosphate holds your genes up. Okay. But I'm bumped. Right. And uh, anyway, so in any case, um, so um, if you're an organism which has a lot of phosphorus in your body that you're growing and building, you need to have a lot of phosphorus in your diet. But the things you're eating might not have a lot of phosphorus in them for various reasons. And therefore, you don't get enough phosphorus in your food. You don't grow very fast. And therefore, you also don't excrete the phosphorus and recycle it very efficiently. So that's kind of the, sci- it's the sort of thing we work on is look, playing those um, dynamics out. We do with almost everything because everything has phosphorus in it, nucleic acids, obviously, and other molecules, bones for vertebrates. And so it allows us to point this theory at any l- moving object and, um, and see if it helps explain their dynamics. And so we work on bacteria, work on archaea, the other thing that looks like bacteria but really isn't, and um, fungi. But most we work on, I work on crustacean zooplankton in lakes mostly. We also work a lot on insects, algae, plants, all this sort of stuff, um, applying this approach, seeing if it helps us understand what's going on. I was uh, I was looking through your website at your research, and and there were like um, uh, there were six different research projects, yeah. um, if I remember correctly. And and I was clicking on the phosphorus one, and I was like, oh no, there's a big problem. Uh, there's <laughs> there's one more thing to worry uh, about. Yeah. Worry about so one thing more thing to worry problems. about. So we work on phosphorus sustainability. So phosphorus is often limiting, right? As I mentioned to organisms when they don't get enough in their food or their environment. It's also true for crops, right? So when you know we triggered the green revolution, we added a lot of nitrogen for fertilizer. And uh, and why aren't so why aren't things getting enough phosphorus? Because it's not that uh, abundant in the biosphere, and the, you know it's in rocks. It's tied up in rocks, and you know everyone has to wait for the rocks to weather. You know, wait for a rock to wear away, essentially to get phosphorus <laughs> moving into the ecosystem. And so it tend, and it tends to get tied up in soil because calcium binds and aluminum bind with it. Um, so it's just kind, and again, when it gets in the water, often it's very dilute, and so it's hard to get it if you're an organism. So phosphorus is often limiting. And it's limiting the crops, and so to overcome that process and trigger the green revolution, we started mining phosphorus from ancient seabed deposits that are out there in different countries. And um, they're limited in their extent, and they're, it's getting expensive, and only, you know, Morocco has a bunch of it, and, you know, we are, our, our supply in the U.S. is starting to, has a few more decades left. So people are starting to wonder how long we can start, keep digging and dumping it. And there's a big dispute about how long that will go on. But nevertheless, the other side of this issue is the phosphorus that's leaking out of the system from the fields themselves in the form of erosion and runoff, but also from cow poop and pig poop and chicken poop and all the poop right, that all the livestock makes. I can say shit. Can I say shit? Yeah, you can. I can okay, anyway, I would normally say shit in that place. But anyway, so all the shit that's going on, we, don't, we won't have a way to deal with it. There's so much of it. 
we used to have, you know, most of the cows and stuff were located where the crops were, and now we've tended to start concentrating the livestock in these large rearing operations, and therefore the manure is too heavy, and it's not worth it to move it around anymore so far to get it back to the farms. So what do they do with it now? They spread. Well, they break it down. They often use, will use manure ponds, and, and they'll take the methane off sometimes. That's pretty creative. Um, but then they still have the phosphorus and nitrogen left. They spread it in the landscape around those organi- uh, all around those operations, but there's not it's too much. Too much the soil can't assimilate all of it. There's not the plants don't need that much and then it starts running off again and it starts getting into estuaries, gets into rivers, gets into lakes, called to this thing called eutrophication, which is the world's second ugliest word after stoichiometry. Eutrophication is the process of ecosystems becoming enriched and overproductive and algae blooms and dead zones and nastiness like that. So that's what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico. The dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is larger than the state of New Jersey now. Whenever something bad happens, they compare it to the state of New Jersey <laughs> somehow. But anyway, um, so dead zones are going on. Cyanobacteria blooms. Lake Erie has big problems. The city of Toledo, as if it didn't have enough troubles already, had to shut down its drinking water supply last summer for about a week because of toxic uh, toxins from cyanobacteria that got in there. Ah, so we're trying. About yeah, that. so it was a big deal. China had a the big city in China had a similar problem several years ago. So this initiative you saw on my website is the Sustainable Phosphorus Initiative, sustainableP.asu.edu, um, and um, and we are trying to bring you know scientists and engineers and folks together and also the folks in the farming sector, water sector, livestock sector to try to figure out the scope of the problem and come up with some solutions, especially the idea of recycling phosphorus. We don't recycle it at all. If we don't have a phosphorus cycle, we have a phosphorus <laughs> shunt or something. We dig it up, we dump it, and we hope for the best. So first off, when uh, so we're digging it up out of these beds, and then what happens next? Then the they process? treat it with concentrated sulfuric acid to substitute the the sulfate for the phosphate, and that purifies the phosphate, then they turn that into fertilizer. The problem with that is when you do that, you produce gigantic things called phosphogypsum stacks, many, many millions of tons of phosphogypsum stacks accumulate around these mines. And this is a problem in Florida where the main um, phosphate mines for the United States are. So they're radioactive. they got heavy metals in them. They're big and ugly. They take a lot of remediation to get them back to something that people will you know, find less objectionable. Sometimes the uh, containment fails and it runs out into some river. Um, so that's what happens from the mining. So the mining itself is sort of destructive, and it would be better you know, if we could f- think of another way um, to do it. So, we would mit- so the idea here is to get recycled phosphorus going. And mm-hmm. This is starting to emerge. There are some commercial operations can recycle phosphorus in advanced wastewater treatment plants. Via various means, and there's the, just the beginnings of an industry that will deal with the um, manure waste. Now. All right. Um, so don't that, panic. People, we're on it. Okay, on, we're on, on it, man. It. <laughs> so we're Everything d- you just said <laughs> it was a mix of confusing and scary. All right, me. well, let me, let me unconfuse you. What was confusing? No, yeah, I, I think I have it now. Okay. I think I, I We've got to cycle it. it back, and then when we cycle it back, you know, the supply will last indefinitely, right? And as long as it's cycling, it's cycle forever, hmm. right? But stuff in the ground only lasts so long. As long as you're digging it up and dumping it and you don't get ever get it back, eventually that'll get depleted, right? You got to keep digging deeper and deeper. It gets more and more costly. So, well, so so what about um, 
what about trying to go back to uh, the the free range with having the cattle graze and and um, that would be that would be good. Indoor. That's you know that that happens a fair amount, right? There's at least the livestock are often some of them are brought up in early stages on open range. There's not a lot of open range left. Livestock um, grazing is also has its own destructive properties on grassland, um, soil uh, degradation and habitat um, degradation. So livestock production itself, if we, if we try to do livestock production at the scale, we currently do it all with wide-ranging and not using confined animal feeding operations, which have a whole range of issues, of course. We'd just themselves. be covered in cows. We would be covered in cows. <laughs> so um, there are vast uh, economic efficiencies that come with the way we produce meat mm. and poultry now that everyone enjoys, right? Because Who eats meat, at least, enjoys uh, uh, because it makes it uh, affordable. So I, I feel like... Uh, <laughs> Anytime I learn about the environment and the various problems going on, I'm like, well, how about we just live it up for 40 years or so? Well, that's kind of what we're, that's sort of what we're doing. I'm trying not to be a downer here because it's important (laughs) for everyone to realize that it's like, we're on it. (laughs) We're working on it. There's things that people can do. So people can do lots of things. So what are those things that the everyday person can do to, you know, to make a difference in the phosphorus uh, side of things? Well, ask yourself, do you need, really need that lawn? Do you really need that lawn? Don't you hate cutting it anyway? Why are you always complaining about mowing the lawn? Well, why not make it smaller, right? Maybe you need, don't need so much of it. I, you know, so make it smaller. Think of other ways to do landscape. Don't if you have a lawn, don't use so much fertilizer on it. Make sure you use the right kind of fertilizer. Um, uh, make sure you're buying phosphate-free detergents if they're if they um, if they most many areas have bans on phosphate-based detergents, uh, so they're not actually available. But if they are available, you shouldn't be using them. Um, you can again, since the phosphorus that our society uses is strongly connected to food production, you can be thinking about your diet and what you're choosing to eat. And again, it comes down very much to uh, meat consumption. And I am not myself a vegetarian. I'm not going to say, oh, you know, put on my sackcloth and say everyone needs to run around and be a vegetarian. Right. Um, I am saying, though, well, you know, vegetarians are pretty clever. They've invented some foods that are pretty tasty. You can have, you know, choose that occasionally. Take that option. Um, it's and one it, more reason to choose vegetarian. One more reason to choose it, but you don't have to go like a whole hog. You don't. Oh, time. that's a bad yeah. analogy, isn't it? But anyway, <laughs> um, you can. <laughs> you don't have just to just once in a while, right? A you you know, a couple days a week. Try to be vegetarian, or if you are having meat, choose the types of meat that have lower phosphorus footprints. And beef has the by far the largest phosphorus footprint. It has the biggest nitrogen footprint. It has the biggest uh, greenhouse gas footprint. So What's that's the most phosphorus-friendly meat that I can eat? Uh, chicken. Chicken. Okay. Maybe rattlesnake. I don't know, but it tastes just <laughs> like chicken, is what they say. But out here in the Arizona, but anyway, they don't have a lot of that in your. In they your serve store. rattlesnake. <laughs> yeah, you can sometimes find it on a menu. Yeah, but anyway. Oh man. Yeah, but no, it's not in your uh, grocery store. Well, but chicken is chicken is better. Okay. Uh, chicken is the best of the main ones, but poultry is. I mean, but pork is also better than better than beef by some degree. And then, you know, seafood. But of course, seafood has its own set of con- sustainability issues as well. <laughs> you have to carry some little encyclopedia in your wallet all the time to know which one to order that's, you know, being grown properly or harvested properly. Yeah. Is any of your work um, scarier than this? Scarier than this. 
I'm trying not to scare you. Um, it's scaring me a little it's scaring bit. you. Um, well, no, you're most of my most of my work about is a thing that I was not aware, aware of. of. We are raising awareness, so. and I'm going to give you. I'll give you a button when you leave. It's called it says save the P exclamation point. P. You'll be the P. first guess. It's giving you some that's swag. Me a button. Yeah, yes, it's been the P is, is P E E. So because so, the idea is to start recycling these things, right, and to yeah. recycle. Um, to recycle um, fertilizer, make fertilizer from recycled sources rather than sourcing it from the ground. So is there anything scarier than this? No, most of my research is quite useless and, um, <laughs> and relatively, relatively unfrightening. Um, so no, I, what's, what's the most useless <laughs> research? Most, that you what do? is the most research I've useless yeah. research I've ever done? <laughs> Oh, we just oh, oh, this could be completely useless. It's quite cool, but this is sort of very topical. Don't don't send this episode to whomever you're applying for grants. And... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, anyway, because top, very topical, there's a big eruption going on down in South Patagonia right now, right where this previous work was done. So we just um, had a project we called the Life on Floating Pumice Project. And so I'll say it again, Life on Floating Pumice okay. Project. <laughs> so I was in South America, in Argentine Patagonia, for my sabbatical leave. And um, right before we got there, a, the Puyehue Cordoncali eru uh, volcano erupted in an incredibly rude way. Uh, closed the airport and everything. But 100 million... It didn't even ask you first. No, it didn't even ask me. I was on my way there for my sabbatical, and nevertheless, it exploded. It's in Chile, though, so they have it again. They, you know, the Chilean Argent the volcanoes, <laughs> I think, have it in for Argentina because they just send all the stuff over into Argentina when they erupt. So all the 100 million metric tons of uh, pumice and stuff was ejected into the landscape in this explosive eruption. It's an astonishing thing. That's already... This is super This is scary. This me. is scary. This might be scary and useless. Really? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, so like well, in right it, now, explosions. That's explosion. Like, that's now exciting. imagine. I was expecting now imagine uh, you come happen. out of your house in the morning and a, a meter of pumice is in your yard. Okay. Yeah. So and that's what, what, what's pumice. Pumice is, is a volcanic, very airy. It's like glass rock that's full of air, mm. so it's really light. I my parents always for, tell me when I was I was born in um, the Tri Cities in Washington and. Um, and in 1980, and Mount St. Helen yep. exploded. Yeah, like a, yeah, that was like quite right an event. when I was that born. That was quite or an something. event. That was quite an event. Well, pumice is all stuff you defoliate your feet with. Ooh. So yeah, so it's use, useful. That, that's that's is useful. That pummel stone. Is that pumice stone. Pumice, pumice stone. Pumice stone. Oh, pumice I always stone. thought it was pu no. pummel. Is pummeling. And pummeling is bad. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Pumice. You don't stone. want to get pummeled by with pumice. pumice. No, you don't. It wouldn't hurt that much because it's very light, even if it fell on the sky in your head. But anyway, so it's very light. But anyway, so 100 million metric tons of this stuff went into the landscape, and all these lakes are in these beautiful lakes are there, and it just covered them, many of them, with this pumice, and floated there for months and months. And but we were down there. Seemed, and I studied lakes. It seemed like something that was pretty uh, relevant. Look at it. it was sort of like, well, we well, kind of since no one's doing anything, about we would this, be stupid. I'm here on we would probably be stupid. Well, sabbatical is not a vacation. Let me clarify. Well, anyway, right. uh, <laughs> okay. So let me just in case any of the state legislature is listening. But anyway, sabbatical leave is not a vacation. Anyway, so um, in any case, so this pumice is floating around these lakes. You know, bacteria are just like that. They just grow on any darn thing that's around. And and so we decided to study the colonization of this sterile rock floating in these lakes for bacteria so we extracted all the dna off it and and um wrote paper that's what we do 
That seems useful. <laughs> I mean, it seems. It, like I a, got a paper out of it. It seems like a really <laughs> big issue. No, it was pretty. It was pretty with. cool. You know, it was a pretty cool thing, and we, you know, and so, um, yeah. Oh, that's very cool. All right. Well, here's what I'm going to do just so, uh, because at some point we're just going to have to cut things off um, we'll do so a wrap you up. can get to your class. So why don't we now, before we start getting into some other work, how about, um, why don't you plug the charity of the week? Okay. So uh, charity of the week, I think we'll do Hyper International. This is a organization that uh, helps um, rural uh, people globally to achieve um, improve their livelihoods and their um, um, viability by providing often providing them with um, the means to obtain um, dairy ca- dairy cows or chickens or poultry and these kind of things so that they can begin to improve their diets and develop local economies for um, uh, locally sustainable agriculture and uh, food system. Mostly just chicken and rattlesnakes, so that we aren't. No, well, no, they get well. They get cows. They often (laughs) will give cows. Uh, It's high for for, yeah. So they do have cows, so they can have uh, milk and such. And go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and under this episode, I will have a link to go and find out um, more about that. So, and my I was jumping. My boss would probably be remiss if I didn't plug the School of Life Sciences, and you can go to the School of Life Sciences website and donate to the School of Life Sciences programs. Yeah, there you go. All right. <laughs> um, and uh, so, what what work are you most excited about right now? All right. So what? Yeah. So we have right now a project underway that is quite cool. We call it the Living with Locusts project. And so this is about a very complex uh, set of interactions between livestock management, soil nutrients, and um, locust outbreaks uh, globally. And so what happens? We think. Well, so locusts. What are locusts? Locusts are really angry grasshoppers. Right, so they're <laughs> they're grasshoppers that, under certain conditions, will change forms. They'll uh, you know, they'll develop this uh, change their behavior. They become very uh, social. They aggregate. They change their metabolism. They change their color, and they start flying too. And um, and of course, as you probably know, they devastate. You know landscapes and agricultural crops globally they're like the incredible hulk of grass yeah hoppers. that's right something like that yeah so would so people are trying to figure out what triggers those and what triggers them is for the primary trigger of them is local population density if they're bumping into each other a lot it t- triggers this change it's, and it is sort of like the hulk getting sort of annoyed yeah. um, and it, strange enough apparently if you have the locust the regular docile form of locust in a laboratory and you take a paintbrush and you can tickle it at a certain spot on its back leg if you do that enough there's a threshold and it will induce it to change its form <laughs> even if there's no other grasshoppers around this is a really weird thing so really? any case yeah that's so that's so it's the first thing that triggers the transformation it, into the hulk uh, lo- uh, grasshopper the locust is um, population local population density but the second thing we discovered do some work in china is it's modulated by their diet. And it turns out that locusts uh, don't like to eat a high-protein diet. They do poorly on the Atkins diet. They like a high-carb a high carb diet. Why, we don't exactly know. Maybe it has something to do with what it takes to fly so far or whatever, or just be ticked off all the time. They need a lot of carbs to metabolize. So 
my, uh, my collaborator, former student Ariane Cease, discovered that by modulating the protein-carbohydrate ratio and the nitrogen content of the grass they eat, we could prevent them from changing form and modulate that transformation. Now, what does that have to do with livestock? What it has to do with livestock is that when you overgraze a grassland, the soil nitrogen uh, fertility starts to degrade. The nutrients are lost. And then the grass develops a low nitrogen content, which means a low protein content, because most of the protein in organism, nitrogen in organism is in the protein. So as the livestock overgraze the landscape, the food quality, the quality of the grass starts to favor the locust, the locust form, the aggressive hulk form of the grasshopper. And so we're trying to build a study that's global. It's in China. It's, well, we are funded to do a study in China, Australia, and Senegal. All of those places have locust outbreaks. We're trying to model the livestock management um, decision-making that takes place locally. What happens during a locust outbreak? The sky grows dark with yeah. a cloud of locusts, and they descend, <laughs> and they eat everything you have. If you're a farmer, especially in a developing world farmer, and you just put everything you had into your crop, and you see it go down the gullet of these things, it is a very sad sight. Yeah. And, um, this is biblical proportions. Biblical, one of the, one of the plagues of, of the Bible, yeah, the locusts. And so they, you know, there's, we used to have locusts in North America, and for various reasons they went extinct that species just went away, but there's, if you read back during the Dust Bowl age in Little House on the Prairie, apparently there's, I never read that book, but apparently there's I a story. I that I did. <laughs> okay, it's, it's all right. Well, apparently it's good. Apparently it's good. Uh, but anyway, there's a story, I guess, where the locusts descend and eat all the clothes off the line. I don't know if you remember that episode in there, but I, I've been told that, no. that that was true in that book. But anyway, so it is a nasty thing, when they, but it's, a, it's just an incredible thing to see. I've never experienced one myself, but... Um, because they're very patchy and sporadic, and I don't really work on locusts, but now mm. I do. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that's a really cool one. Um, so it involves social scientists and grasshopper people and grassland people and livestock management people. Very complicated project. So are you actually getting grasshoppers and studying them, or are you just kind of networking with other people? No, we are. So my colleague, Ariane Cease, is a faculty member here at ASU, and she's right now building a world-class locust rearing facility on campus, and so she is establishing populations of locusts that she'll be able to just graze. tickling them? She'll be tickling the crap out of them and uh, feeding them bad food or good food and oh, seeing okay. what happens. And um, Why does the tickling trigger? It's like they're getting bumped into okay. by someone. I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's like someone... On the, it, it's like being it, on the subway. Like you're walking and someone keeps on stepping on the yeah. back of your shoe. Yeah, exa and exactly. And around and Yeah, and there's them. another similar story. It's a, there's a funny paper. It's about Mormon crickets, which are in, in the western United States, and they also have these swarms and such. And um, But they don't fly. I don't think I know much about their natural, but there's a really interesting paper called... Do they um, do they have multiple wives or wives? no no they're just in the Mormon country so they're okay. called Mormon crickets but I think that there's a paper called a forced march under nitrogen starvation or something like this because what happens is they get all lined up and they keep moving because the the cricket cricket behind them tries to eat them what yeah. <laughs> There's nibbling on the cricket in front of them. It's They're really slowly strange. eating. Yeah, your yeah. So that's you got to keep moving. 
right? Well, if you're on the subway and someone was yeah. sort of like a zombie Just film biting, or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So you would keep moving, right? If someone behind you was taking a nip out of you. Right. But it's just like, this is just the, some normal guy, Steve, who's just Yeah. And you're around. interested in nipping the guy in front of you as well. So <laughs> it's sort of like, yeah. Bite. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know, how that plays out. Anyway. Uh, so I don't, I don't understand. Uh, so what's the function of becoming locusts? That is a great question. That's the big open question that locust biologists have been trying to understand for a long time. And like they, you would think, and if, it, if there was a function, why not be locusts? All, all the, the time. time. There must be a cost to being a locust, right. right? So there must be a trade-off involved, right? So there must be a trade-off, an advantage sometimes to be green and calm. Does a locust have a short lifespan? I think so. Where's Ari? Bring Ari in. She's <laughs> Lars. She's, you're going to tap me out of my locust expertise here soon. But you I know. didn't think I was going to ask questions that you wouldn't have an answer. Well, for, no, you yes. are. You no, know, why? Yeah. So the, the <laughs> locust biology, there's many, many hypotheses out there about the trade-offs involved in the locust life history strategy. And it's really, it's. Um, We've been talking a lot about trade-offs in life history. Yeah, it's another one. Yeah. So there's advantages to being. Um, to being green and calm and quiet as a grasshopper. And there's something... Probably get to live a long life. Probably, and... yeah. Probably less predation risk and such. And then, um, and then I, I mean, the, the most common interpretation is that local conditions are deteriorating and you're, you're going to bail out because food is about to run out because the population got too dense. Do locusts mate? Of course, yes. They're sexual. They do as mm-hmm. well. Okay, yeah. so yeah. they don't turn that off. When, no, when no, no. They flip. no. They always have a sexual reproduction. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, well, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing well, the, more about. Yeah. Locusts. So then the bo- so here's the other bottom line from a sustainability sort of side of things. The title is living with locusts. So the point is that we need to learn to live with locusts because what we do now is we just spray the crap out of them whenever they erupt, and it's just not very effective. And the pesticide use, of course, is very damaging. So our hope or plan here is that if we had a more a better approach to a more holistic approach to livestock rangeland management we might be able to keep the locusts down have a healthier grassland if you keep them happy and keep them them happy in the keep them happy in the green form right in the calm form and don't hack them off by getting too many cows on the landscape or sheep or whatever it is and uh, maintain rangeland health and hopefully that'll tend to modulate the the locust outbreak so that's the Solution side, don't, yes, unless anyone get all scared and panicked again, the coming plague of attacking us um, and, <laughs> and chewing our clothing off well, or something now like I that. Want to, <laughs> I, I used to always catch grasshoppers as a kid. Yes. And now I want to go and tickle their legs. Well, you'll probably be frustrated because uh, all locusts are grasshoppers, but very few grasshoppers are locusts. Oh. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So, gra- uh, what uh, you mean? Just taxonomically certain species? speaking, only certain or? species of grasshoppers are classified as locusts. Oh, okay. That have this this phase change, this hulk behavior. Huh. So not yeah. So not all grasshop. Very few lo- grasshoppers are locusts. So if you just bump into a random, gra- especially North America, you have never encountered a locust. Hmm. But if you're in Africa or Australia or China, you may well, a grasshopper you might encounter would be a locust. But actually, in Mongolia grassland, when we work, there's, that reaches 150 species of grasshoppers, and only one of which is a locust. Wow. Um, now, what a weird, fascinating uh, thing. This is the first episode 
that I've had where a guest had a hundred percent all stuff that I knew not a thing about. Well, that just speaks <laughs> to the effectiveness of uh, how, how we are in getting our, our, our findings out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this phosphate issue seems like an awfully big deal, and I knew nothing it's about it. It's a big it deal. We I had a, a, a piece in Slate magazine last year. Okay. It was called The Dirty But Necessary Way to, to um, Feed 9 Billion People. But we, our, the title we went in was Talking Shit About Future Food. And they didn't want to use that. You know what? Maybe I'll try to find a link. Um, yeah, link to that. It'll be good. To put on the site because that sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's the right format too. Um, well, I had better let you um, get to class because I got to pack up my gear and everything as well. But um, uh, maybe next time uh, I'm I'm in, in town, I'll we could talk about pandas. We could talk about cancer. We could talk about well, we could talk about lakes, which we haven't really talked about. Um, there's lots of things we could talk about. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Come on back. I wanted to yeah. ask you all about pandas. Yeah, and now, um, yeah, and also about I, shit no, and also about teaser. shit and phosphorus and calcium and other things. Yeah. More shit talk. Yeah. Um, thank you, Jim Elser. Uh, for uh, coming on the program, and thank you guys for listening. Next week, I have a bit of a unique, interesting episode. Some of you guys might be excited. A lot of you found this podcast from hearing me on Pete Holmes's podcast, You Made It Weird. We talked um, about a lot of things, one of them being psychedelics, which I didn't intend on talking about, and we did, and I ended up getting a lot of unintended um, buzz from that, and people were real excited uh, to hear me talk about that. Well, I've tried finding different scientists to talk about um, psychedelics with, and it is difficult sometimes. It's a bit difficult, but I found this weird, genius performance art guy, and we had um, the most fantastic conversation. It was my first, um, it was my first two-part episode. Many of you have wrote in and and suggested and wanted and requested longer episodes, which is just very difficult for me to ask of my guests. And uh, this one, we we just could not fit everything in one hour. And so I had to come back and do another one. I'll probably put it all together for one episode for next week. Um, So make sure and tune into that. It's uh, it's it's different. It it's um, a, a very um, more more casual and philosophical conversation than than some of than all of the podcasts so far, and I think you guys will dig it. So tune into that one and um, make sure and get my album, my big break. Do not forget to tell everyone you ever met to get my album every single person you've ever met if you're in aa and you're going around and having to like apologize for a bunch of things and you're in that step just when you're done apologizing for whatever you did whatever you screwed up doing at the end just say hey check out shane moss's album my big break um, and all will be forgiven because you will have brought joy into their lives. So, um, yep, could have said bye there, 
Now I got to keep saying something else? No, I don't. You guys understand how brains work. Not perfectly. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll see you. I'll be inside of your ears (laughs) next Monday. There's probably a better way of saying that as well. Bye. Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. (laughs) Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.